Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 75. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we have something very, very fun. I'm excited for this. We've been talking about doing this for a while. Yeah, but we had to wait for everybody to catch up, to be fair. Very true. We're going to introduce something very, very cool here. Disney Plus Roulette. Yes! <laughs> I'm so excited for this. Because Disney Plus is a treasure trove of content. I mean, you could end up with a Disney Sunday movie. You could end up with a Disney uh, a animated D-com. classic, a DCOM. There's so many ways that this can go. And I couldn't be happier to have landed on the movie that we landed on. But before we talk about the film, we're going to tell you a little bit about this roulette and sort of how we... I'm going to try to dumb it down because it is kind of complicated and I don't want to eat up too much time with this. Well, yeah, we picked random numbers. And basically, if you're looking at Disney Plus as a grid system, which it is, we went down X amount of rows over... X amount of columns, and then we landed on the movie. Right. So moving forward, we want to hear from our listeners. Give us some random numbers, and you guys are basically going to determine what it is that we're watching yeah. at random. Yeah, you can give us some random numbers. Let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can also email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. So after putting into the Google random number generator, we stumbled upon blank check, and I could not have been more excited to come upon this movie because this was a staple in my house. Same with me. So I'm really relieved that we got something that we were both familiar with because this could have gone left so quickly. It, yeah. Like, I'm dreading the day we have to do, what is it, the Apple Dumpling Gang or whatever that fever dream is? Yeah, well, we might have to just do the Apple Dumpling Gang because you brought it up now. I, I've i never even heard of that movie. All I did was see the title on Disney+. Plus. Yeah. I have no idea what it's about. I don't, I don't even know when it's from. I mean, it's early. Definitely early. I'm wondering if that was one of the... Um, when Walt started producing uh, a lot of book adaptations overseas, so they had the European yeah, yeah, yeah. audience. I'm wondering if that's where it's from. But it could be. The only yeah, watch now we're gonna get numbers. Somebody's gonna send it in and set us up for that. Yeah. The I will say <laughs> though, the only rule right now is that we will not do sequels if we have not reviewed the original film. Like if we land on yeah, Beverly yeah, yeah. Hills Chihuahua three. It's going to be disqualified, because how can we review the third without having spoken about one or two? I might DQ Beverly Hills Chihuahua, period. No, you, de- <laughs> you DQ nothing. This is legit. This is for real. And I want to roll with it. We're and re- it's two numbers, right? We need two numbers. We need one for the... No, three, because we need one for the row, one for the... No, it's two. It is two, yes. It's how many How, how many, many rows down, rows and, how down many columns over. and how many columns over. Yes. So... Again, you can let us know on our social media. Um, Okay, so blank check. This was one that I watched a lot. Like I said, it was a staple. I actually had this recorded on VHS um, off of the Disney Sunday movie. I saw it in theaters. So we didn't see it in... Did we? No, we didn't see this one in theaters. This was a wait for the VHS release and then tape it off the television. But... um, 
I'm just going to get right into the plot here because it's it's not that the plot is that intricate, but it's Richie Rich and Home Alone. It's it's exactly what it is, and whether it is far fetched enough for you or not, that is for you to determine. The film opens with Carl Quigley. He has escaped from prison, and. He runs to a warehouse where he retrieves a case that he had hidden with $1 million in marked cash hidden in it. Um, After we see him leave with his money, we meet Preston Waters, an 11-year-old who is losing his bedroom as his brothers Ralph and Damien take over the room to launch their business Hand in Foot uh, Hand and Foot Incorporated. Um, we don't know what this business is. We just know that it's hand and foot, hand and foot, hand and foot. They're going to make money. They're going to make money. And their parents are totally okay with this. They're so okay with this that their father got them a Mac computer. I believe it was an extra one that he had lying around at the office. And he gave it to them to run their business. And Preston is really voicing his displeasure with this. And the parents are having none of it. They're like, well, they launched a business and they need the space. So naturally, they're going to take your room, Preston. It's also right around Preston's birthday. So he gets a birthday card from his grandmother. And when he opens it, he is shocked to find that she sent a blank check. So his father fills out the check for $11 to take to the bank and says, it'll grow quickly with interest. He also gives him $6 to go to Butch's birthday party. Butch is a kid from school that invited, I guess, the entire class out because I really don't understand why Preston was there otherwise. Um, Invites them to the fun park. I think Cliffside Fun Park uh, was the name. And it's not a pay one price. You had to buy tokens and the tokens were a dollar a piece. So he doesn't get very far with his $6. And the other kids at the party are mean to Preston and they taunt him and he really just ends up having absolutely no fun. The next day, Quigley goes to the bank where he talks to Mr. Bitterman, who runs the bank, about money laundering. We also find out that Bitterman had testified against Quigley in his trial. And Quigley says that I'm going to come back, I'm going to give you, you're taking my marked bills, $1 million worth of marked bills, and I'm going to send my guy juice with a check with my signature on it for a million dollars. He cashes the check with you, you keep the marked bills, and you give him real money, because otherwise the FBI will be able to track this. So Bitterman eventually but reluctantly agrees after Quigley threatens his family, and he gives him a book of temporary checks. Meanwhile, Preston is also at the bank to open an account when he meets Shay Stanley, who is an undercover FBI agent because they're on to the fact that there's been money laundering and they're kind of keeping an eye on Bitterman. Um, And she tells him that he needs $200 to open the account and to please come back because the uh, the $11 he has is just not enough. As Preston is leaving the bank, Butch steals the check and Preston chases after him on his bicycle where he is uh, eventually... Uh, He falls off the bike eventually in the parking lot of the bank and Quigley, not knowing that Preston is there, backs his car up and runs over Preston's bike. And the police notice that something's going on and Quigley, being an escaped convict, 
just signs a blank check, gives it to Preston, and says, your father will know what to do with this, because he was trying to just kind of pay him off for whatever he felt the bike was worth. So, anyway, Preston goes home and gets scalded by his parents over the bike being broken and over him saying that he would like his own room for his birthday. and He doesn't want his brothers moving into his private space. So naturally, he gets grounded, and he takes the blank check upstairs to his bedroom where he fills it out for $1 million. The next day, he goes back to the bank, and Bitterman mistakes him for juice and gives him the money. Loads it up in his backpack, off he goes. Meanwhile, the real juice... Played by Tone Loke. How 90s is that? Tone Loke plays Juice. He shows up and they realize the mistake that they have made. Preston then goes on to buy a house over the phone, outbidding Quigley, who is at the house ready to close on the house in a cash deal because he has no idea that his money's been given away. And Preston, using a voice box on the Mac computer, outbids Quigley with his own money, and tells everybody that his name is Macintosh because it's the name he pulls off of the computer. By the way, I did not think I was going to spend this much time on this plot. I thought I was going to be way done with this by now, if I'm being honest with you. Well, you know what? I feel like a lot of people haven't seen this one. So it's not like one of the an- the classic animation ones where we can give a more brief plot and people are so familiar with well, it. Well, the other thing is like for the first ha- and I'm going to get back into the plot here in a minute. The first half an hour of this movie though, there is a lot going on. Yeah, and, and then, and it, then, it, then it, it's a toy montage. Exactly. Then it then it's then it's a Toys R Us commercial for the next hour but but a lot happens in the first half hour so don't get up and and go to the bathroom if you are just pause the movie anyway so he buys the house outbidding quigley as i said he then sneaks out of his bedroom hires a limousine to take him on the spending spree that he's always wanted to go on where we meet Henry, his limo driver. And he tells Henry, along with everyone else, that he works for Macintosh, handling his day-to-day, and basically he just buys everything that he wants because that's his payment, is Macintosh didn't get a childhood, so he's letting uh, Preston live the childhood that Macintosh wishes he would have lived. All the while, Quigley, Juice, and Bitterman are trying to track him down. A couple of days later, after he has a go-kart track put in and a big water slide in the pool and all of his toys and his video games, Shay Stanley shows up at the house, unannounced, asking for Macintosh, um, but instead ends up agreeing to go on a date with Preston where they are eventually tracked down by Quigley, Juice, and Bitterman, and they outrun them. Meanwhile, Shay doesn't know that she's outrunning them. She thinks that she's just racing him back to the car. This is Preston, that is. Preston then decides he's going to throw himself a big birthday party under the guise of we're throwing it for Macintosh, and he hires Yvonne as his party planner, who, unbeknownst to him, runs up a $100,000 tab throwing this birthday party. Ralph and Damien, at this point, have now been hired by Preston to work for Macintosh, when in fact they're really working for him, and they tell him that Shay is a gold digger, and she wants Macintosh and his money, not a little boy with an empty piggy bank. Uh, They end up throwing the party where it turns out that... Um, when he goes to pay Yvette, Preston realizes that all of his money is gone. He has spent 
$1 million in six days. While he is sitting at his computer with his back turned to the door entering the room, his father shows up and walks in and thinks he's talking to Macintosh and basically opens up about how uh, his father died penniless and he didn't want the same thing to happen to his kids and maybe he was too hard on his 11-year-old son for not having a job and making his own money and wanting more than $6 to go to the amusement park and wanting, wanting his own bedroom and everything else and saying he's forcing him to grow up too fast. And as Preston goes to talk to his father, he sees that his father has already left the party. When he tells uh, Yvonne that Macintosh is gone, there is no money, she closes the party up, the party is over, all of the house guests leave, but Quigley, Juice, and Bitterman show up because they have also, while this is going on, they kidnap. I can't believe I'm still talking about this plot. They <laughs> kidnapped Butch and are forcing Butch to take them to Preston's house because now they've figured out who Preston is. So anyway, the three of them chase Preston around this house that he has purchased and eventually, after some hijinks, very home alone-ish, they do capture him and find out that he has spent all of the money. But they come up with this plan where Quigley is going to assume the identity of Macintosh because, as Bitterman pointed out, you were looking for a new life. You were looking for a new identity so that you could live and and kind of be in hiding. You don't have to worry about that because Preston did all of this for you. You just tell everybody your name is Macintosh. And he thinks it's a great idea until the FBI shows up and arrests everybody. Um it's at that point that Shay tells Preston that she is, of course, an FBI agent and agrees that I think the number they came up with was six or seven years from that date that they would go on their second date. And Shay kisses Preston. On the mouth. On the mouth. And then Preston goes home to his parents and his brothers where they have a birthday cake waiting for him and they tell him to make a wish and he says he's got everything he wants and then he sees a picture of Shay that he had taken from the bank because they put her picture on a flyer and he looked at it and he smiled and he blew out his candles so clearly the wish was for Shay. Where do we want to start? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you want me to bat so lead off? To say. There's I, a lot to say about this movie. I want to start at the very beginning. Oh, well, naturally. I, I think this is going to work best if we work in order here. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> There's just so much going on. I, here's the thing. So right out of the gate, we have absolutely no context for Quigley going to reclaim this, reclaim this money other than that he's broken out of prison. And he's in his orange jumpsuit. Exactly. And it's raining and it's supposed to look like very, I don't know, like 90s heist movie, like a Die yeah. Hard or something yeah, yeah, yeah. like that. Um, so I just kind of wish that we had actually seen the heist go off instead of seeing that he was in jail. I mean, I guess that later serves for when he's buying the house and he's looking to start over, like they need to give him a criminal past. But I kind of wish that we had seen him actually steal the money because he alludes to it so many times that I worked so hard. Was, you didn't work for it. You didn't work for anything. You stole, you it, stole it. And then you left it at a drop point and you just went to go pick it up when you busted out of jail. So I kind of think that they were trying to emulate another movie and just have it look cool 
instead of actually serve their story. So we're we're getting off on a bad foot here. I disagree. I, I think it's enough where the imagery of him in the jumpsuit, you hear the police cars in the background, the sirens, he's running, he digs his money up. I, I mean, as a, I, I think I was eight years old when this movie came out. As an eight-year-old, I knew that he was an escaped convict. I, I don't think you needed to actually see him spend this money or, or, or steal this money. Because then... He steals the money and you flash forward to him breaking out of jail. It's not necessary. Because the thing is, he's a villain, but it's not Quigley's movie. That's my point. It's just like, hey, guys, here's the villain. There's no context other than that. Fair enough. But it was the 90s and we didn't do backstory then. True. But I don't. We're going to agree to disagree on that one. It's minutia. This is not. Like a huge plot point that's wrong with the movie. No, I think because I, I have this unique this. feeling that you have far more issues with this movie than what you see in the first 40 seconds. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's jump to the next scene. I mean, this is almost going to be a scene by scene breakdown at this point. Let's jump to the next scene where Damien and Ralph just bust into Preston's room unannounced. With all of their materials for hand and foot, hand and foot, hand and foot. (laughs) Why are his parents so okay with Preston losing his bedroom to his two older brothers? Well, because industry is rewarded in this family, son. I know. That is a direct quote from the father. It is. This scene gives me agita over how unfair it is to Preston. First of all, you've got... A large room to begin with. So you kind of get the impression just from the size of Preston's room that the family is well off. Also, In spite of the fact that the father is cheap. Yeah. And if you want to delve a little bit deeper into that, you know, the house that Preston eventually buys is a couple of houses away and it's a very expensive home. It almost looks like a castle. So you have to imagine that they're pretty well off. But like the size of Preston's room, I would say, is like about the size of an average master bedroom it's a big room granted whatever it's probably a set build you need to get the cameras in there and whatever but like it's big room he's got a lot of stuff in it and you're right i cannot believe that the parents would just be okay with it first of all it's not fair that the brothers are even doing it but the fact that the parents go along with it and then that they try to justify this to preston is absolutely bogus and it's almost as if Preston is being punished for being a kid. He's 11 years old. What kind of job or company or business is he going to own? Other than maybe mowing somebody's lawn. But even at 11, I don't think you can really handle that. Well, that's kind of what I was thinking, too, because I was like, you can't penalize him for not being able to go and legally work yet. Like, the dad's acting like he's, you know, 16 and old enough for working. I mean, state of New York, that's... The standard. Yeah. But he's acting like Preston is just sitting around leeching off of them and not even acknowledging that he can't get a job yet. And they do try to take care of that in a throwaway line because he does say, when I was your age, I had, I believe it was um, like a car washing business or something like that. Or No, it was a paper route. I think it was a paper route. Sure. Whatever, something a kid would have. Right. And yes, at at that age, you could hold down a job like that. But I mean, 
for the scale that they're talking about, he's making it sound like Preston should be like saving up to put himself through college. Yeah. It, yeah, it's not. It would have been a better setup if, for example, when you get to the scene where he takes uh, Preston to Butch's birthday and Preston says, Dad, I need money. And he was like, Preston, I thought we've talked about this. You know, we're, we're, you, we can give you an allowance if you mow the lawn, but maybe you go, t- you know, and again, I'm making way more of this than there needs to be. But if you would have set up, get a paper route, go weed the garden for the old lady across the street. Just something. Just give it some texture. Give it some context. But none of that ever happens. Right, because the other thing is that they don't discuss any kind of allowance, and that keeps coming up later. Is It's like, well, Preston, you have to save your money. How? If the kid doesn't have a job or any way of generating income, like, what is he supposed to be saving? And right. that's the argument he does try to make with his dad. But there, I think that's part of the thing, and it, it does work for the sake of conflict, but... They're talking about two different things. And the weird thing for me, too, is that the dad has some kind of corporate job, it seems, because we don't know what he does, but he's got a proposal. And Proposition 442. Exactly. So if the dad was an entrepreneur, I'd have more respect for him trying to instill that in Preston. Yeah. I think there was a throwaway line somewhere where the father... I don't know if he was an investment banker or worked with investments, but we're we're making more of this than is necessary, and that's the truth of it. But there just there was never that moment, there was never that conflict where any means of him making money would have been realistic or made sense. And you're right, the parents are just throwing one blanket statement after another at this kid. Like, I, th- I feel like the movie almost would have worked better if he was 16 years old and didn't want to get off his butt and just wanted to sit there and play video games. But then he's not endearing either. So that's, And then some of the toys wouldn't have mattered. It's right. So, I mean, uh, listen, I- I'm going to just jump in right now and say this. These types of movies, you do have to suspend realism. An 11-year-old child would never come into a million dollars. So I'm not going to sit here and say, that's not realistic, and that's why this movie's bad. Like, no. Shut up, it's a kid's movie. But that doesn't change the fact that there's conflict with no substance. Right, and you could make the argument that a movie like Home Alone is totally unrealistic, but they did a better job of covering those bases. That's what this movie does fail to do. Like, for example, where it really comes to head with his parents... um, Preston has gone to deposit his grandmother's check at the bank and then uh, Butch steals it. There's a there's a bike chase through the parking lot. And Mm -hmm. that's when Quigley runs over Preston's bike. And Preston has at this point jumped off of it. And, you know, you just hear it go crunch under the wheel. So he goes home and explains to his parents what happened. And their bigger issue is not that he had a near death experience. It's that he didn't take care of a gift that they gave him. And that's what they're upset about. Yeah. I mean, he's he, he essentially he's being punished for being hit by a car. Right. Butch stole something. It's the only money Preston has. Mm-hmm. Be, and his, his father wants him to save what he can. So here Preston's doing the right thing, not taking the money and cashing it and going to 
you know, the video store to rent a movie or to the candy shop or, or to Toys R Us. He's trying to take it to the bank. He's trying to be responsible. And this bully, and we're going to talk about Butch in a minute. We're going to really talk about this entire scene in a minute. Um, he, he takes the only thing that the kid really has to go to the bank, and he gets hit by a car. And somehow Preston is in trouble over all of this. And I feel like the movie makes the mistake of trying to set it up as if his parents are upset with his attitude towards them. Because of the way it's presented and because of the dialogue. If they would have said, we don't appreciate your tone when he gets when he gets snippy with them, I would have understood that. But the way that it's written is, you're in trouble for being hit by a car. Well, you do need to set up the fact that this is twofold and it's not just that Preston needs money. It's that he wants his own space because they're... They keep driving home the my house, my rules. So yeah. you do have to push it forward a little bit to make him want to get out of the house. Totally unrealistic, though. And like in a, in a real life situation, like my parents would be hunting down the person. They were they the first thing they'd be asking is not about the bike, but like, did you get a license plate? Right. But these parents just seem to have their priorities out of whack. Like when. The father says, we're going to rewind, make a video store reference. We're going to rewind again. <laughs> and uh, he sets the computer up for his sons and says, this computer will do everything except teach you how to make love to a woman. And Oh, the sorry, mom... I got way far ahead there. Yes, you, you, you jumped like 20 minutes, by the way. Um, and then the mother walks in and says, now I know what to get your father for Christmas. That's a very <laughs> <laughs> adult joke. It's very funny. Yeah. But that is a very adult joke and not even like in the Toy Story sense of humor where it's going to go over a kid's head. That's just it, it's quite a dig. There is there's a point I'm going to make here in a little while as to why I think dialogue like this happened in this movie. Um, other than I mean, without giving too much away, this movie is totally a product of its time. It was the mid 90s. I've talked about a lot of in in the in past episodes. I've talked about the tropes of the of the '90s and a lot of the things that you would see pop up in films. And Disney was no different. You know, they fell into the same trap that a lot of other companies and and studios fell into. And we'll talk about that as we kind of move on with this review as we delve further into the plot of this movie. But I. Yes, it's it's a very uncomfortable piece of dialogue, but I understand why it's there. If that makes any sense whatsoever. I would agree with that. I think that it was just sort of standard for films that were being made. I don't know that that's standard, though. Like, that was a good joke. It was. Oh, the joke is fantastic. It's just wildly uncomfortable because they're saying this in front of in front of the kid. Yeah, like the other the other joke that plays well is like when one of the older brothers punches him and he's like, "Don't rub it, be a man." I find that really funny. I don't know why, but like every time it gets me. Right. Um, or how about when they're at the again? We're now we're jumping around, but when Quigley and uh, Juice and Bitterman are looking for him, and they go to a water park, and Quigley is smoking a cigar. Which, by the way, I love that. When they rated this on Disney Plus, they had to tell you scenes involving tobacco. Like they ha it was like a disclaimer. <laughs> so Disney had to apologize for having smoking in the film. Yes. And the kid, one just some kid walks up and goes, hey, mister, where's the snack bar? <laughs> and, and no, he goes, do you know where the snack bar is? And quickly takes his cigar and pops the kid's balloon with it and goes, no. And the kid <laughs> runs away crying. 
That gets me every time, and I've laughed at it forever, and I will continue to laugh at it every time I watch this movie. Um, all right, let's get back on track here. Butch invites Preston to his birthday party, but I can't understand why. Butch is such a 90s movie trope, though. Yes. I feel like every 90s movie, like Little Rascals, had a, a Butch bully. Yeah, I mean... It- the Little Rascals did, but every film had this like problem child um, yes. that was just so obnoxious and he was the cool kid. I mean, that even I mean, th- that's been in movies forever. Sure. I mean, you, you can even go back to um, not that it's that not that it's that old, but even going back to like Scott Farkas in A Christmas Story. You know what I'm saying? It was like the bully. But he still had his group of friends because people were intimidated by him. He right. was popular through fear. Sure. And I think that's kind of what's going on with Butch here. He's completely dislikable. But and when I say that, I mean that the child actor whose name escapes me, he did a really good job, actually, with this character. Yeah, I think uh, I want to say Zuckerman is his last name. He was also one of the Lost Boys in Hook. Yes. Um, but... I thought he was so good in this because he was so obnoxious and so snarky and was just the smart Alec. Alex Zuckerman is his name. Alex Zuckerman. But there's no better way to put it. He's just the smart Alec, but he did it really, really well. It It was totally convincing. Oh, yeah. Like, I didn't get the feeling that he was trying too hard. And especially in the 90s where... We have used the phrase "90s all-knowing quit machine kid," where the where it's totally overacted and it's too much. But this kid told the line very well. And there's a line too where, if the movie feels dated, it's other than the music and the cars and the outfits, and, and there's plenty of outfits. We're, we'll get to that soon. When and 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 kids today wouldn't understand this when Preston and his parents are sitting at the dinner table and. Um, his brothers leave to go to the baseball game, and he goes, can I come? And they go, we bought tickets. And his father goes, do you guys need a few bucks? Okay. First off, and, and now I've gotten away from what it was I was going to talk about, but it all happens in this scene. I want to point out that the father couldn't give Preston more than $6 to go to the amusement park. His son with no job, mm-hmm. and I guess he's trying to teach him a lesson, but his other two kids who have their own money and are making money hand over foot. Yeah. He offers to give them cash to take to the baseball game. They have money. They have means of making money. They afforded baseball tickets. I'm going to give you more. I'm going to give my 11 year old who can't make money. Nothing. What's so unrealistic about that too, is that usually you always had to take the younger sibling along. And I feel like that was kind of a 90s thing, too, where it was like the older brothers were always dumping on the other one. And then they were like, no, let them tag along. Yeah. And then the younger kid would like foil the older siblings plans or whatever it was. But like that was kind of surprising to see, too, is that usually you fault the older siblings for not including the younger one. Yeah, it was I, I don't know if there was a lesson to be learned there. Like, they can go to the game because they earned the right to go because they earned money and spent their own money, and you can't. And you, There's just... The, I can't stress enough the punishment on Preston for not having his own money at the age of 11 is really, really overblown here. 
No, and honestly, I, I, you it gets really to can't point, understate it. I know we've been talking about it for a while, but this is really only in the first like fifteen minutes of the movie. Yeah, and like it does a good job of getting you invested in Preston because at this point, I'm so angry for him. Right. Because it's so unjust. Yeah, so I, I suppose if there is a success of the script in spite of the flaw, it's that th- it's that it is a flaw, and everybody recognizes that it's a flaw, so you can't help but feel bad for this poor kid. No, and that's what I meant earlier, is that you have to give him a reason to not only want money, but to get out of the house. And because we're sympathizing with what a bad situation he's in, that's where you can suspend your disbelief when he decides to move out eventually. Right. The other thing that I started talking about before I got off on that tangent was while they're sitting at the dinner table before um, the other two bolt for the baseball game, Preston asks his parents, are we broke? And his parents go, no, we just have to watch our spending habits. And his father goes, yeah, you know, like when your mother calls her sister back east and talks for 97 minutes. That dates this movie a lot. Now, there was no way of knowing in 1994, well, I think the movie was released in 94, shot in 93. There was no way of knowing that long distance calls were no longer going to be a thing. But a kid nowadays... Who's you? First off, very few people even have a house phone. They just do everything on the cell phone, and it's all unlimited. And I can talk to anybody in the world, and it's just what I pay in my cell phone bill. It doesn't really cost any more. Sure. You know, I mean, there's international calling, but if I call somebody in Oregon, it doesn't cost any more than if I call the person next door. But there was a time where if you called long distance before nine o'clock at night, kids, you had to pay a lot of money for it, a lot of money. It's true. And that's a joke or a reference that a kid nowadays is just not going to understand when they see this movie. You're absolutely right. That's an aside. I want to talk about, we've gotten through um, the dinner and Preston gets the blank check now from his grandmother and his father fills it out for a lousy 10 bucks and he goes, well, dad, what about inflation? And he goes, oh, we'll make it 11. And he goes, you'd be surprised how quickly $11 can grow with interest, son. Again, not anything that 11-year-olds should have to know at the age of 11. So let's go to the next scene where we're in the bank. And Quigley walks in, played by um, Miguel Ferrer, who I actually think did an excellent job with this character. I totally bought him as Quigley. I think that he's perfectly calculated. He's perfectly arrogant. But his comedic timing throughout this movie is really, really good. Yeah, because he he really balances being an evil villain, but lightens it so that he's not being completely terrible to a child. But yeah. he's still like menacing enough. Yeah. But in all, I really I liked him and I liked this character. To be honest with you, I liked him, Bitterman, and Juice together. I, I really did like the three of them. I did too, yeah. Um, because there was there was a there was a balance between the zaniness and the comedy and the franticness and the evil of it all. It actually did balance out, and I got the feeling that the three actors really did do a good job together. Like they they just seemed like from the moment they hit the set they had a good rapport with each other. And I think that that's sort of what made them such a good trio. 
Definitely. And I think that kind of adds to Quigley as the villain is because he did pressure Bitterman into like Bitterman's not a villain. He gets roped in with Quigley and Juice. Not the, even the I mean, Juice is the muscle, really. The, yeah. More than anything else. And Michael Lerner plays Bitterman, by the way. We didn't say that before. Yes. Um. So I think that that's where Quigley comes off a little bit more threatening because he roped Bitterman into this. Right. When he's not supposed to be a bad guy. Exactly. But he has to answer too quickly. Right. But this entire money laundering scam, it totally makes sense. Yeah. I'm going to bring these marked bills in and now you owe me a favor or I'm going to kill your family. Basically is what Quigley says. And we're going to swap dirty bills for clean bills. And that's going to be it. And you'll disperse the marked bills out elsewhere and... It'll be a little here, a little there. Nobody will ever know. No, and that adds a level of realism that you need. It layers the story more. Right. And obviously he's going to send juice because he himself does not want to show up and walk out of that bank with a million dollars in cash because he's trying to lay low. Can we talk about Juice's shirt now? Uh, (laughs) No, because we haven't gotten to Juice yet. Um, We haven't seen him yet. Slow down. Um, The... The the score and everything about this plot so far, but the score specifically and the and the music in the background, it's so nineties. It's one note. But it's so nineties. And it's it's in this scene specifically <sighs> as Preston now has flirted with Shay and she tells him he's gotta leave. And it's this like little um snatch and grab scene with him and Butch as they're riding their bikes through the parking lot. It's so 90s. It really is. But yeah, the music specifically in this, it's like one big attack on the note that just kind of like trails off. Yeah. And it happens like any time Quigley or Juice is in a scene. Exactly. So Preston gets his bike run over by Quigley and Quigley at first is basically like, Get your bike out from underneath my car. I'm out of here. And um, Quigley starts to offer Preston his check because now it's starting to like a, a crowd is starting to gather in this parking lot and somebody who knows Preston approaches him. I don't think she knew him. I think she's a whistleblower. I don't know because I I it sounded like she called him Edward. I, I don't know, but she acted as if she had known him before. I thought she was a rando that was just like, I saw the whole thing. I don't know. She she seemed like she was more concerned with him specifically more than just, I saw it. Who wants to talk to me? I mean, you could be right about that, but I just don't know. But the point is, it's at this point that he just signs his name on a blank check and sticks it in his pocket because he sees the cops are coming. How quickly is able to just up and leave a scene where you have hit a child's bike with your car and he just leaves without getting pursued makes absolutely no sense. Well, I understand that's how child. I understand that's how the rest of the movie gets set up. But even I have to say, eh, this is a little unbelievable for me. Yeah, or at least let the cops catch up a little bit more and then have them peel out yeah. or something. Let's move on now to where Preston actually tells his parents about this. I think I said it before, but it bears repeating if I didn't say it already. Why are you mad he got hit 
by a car. Why? He didn't do anything wrong here. I understand you're trying to make the parents dislikable. Well, here's the th- here's okay. If I have an issue with this with this film, it's that I feel like at times, and and I do like Preston, but I feel like at times, rather than working to make Preston more likable, they just thought it was easier to make the characters around him dislikable. That's a really great point. And scenes like this are proof of that. No parent would be mad that their kid got hit by a car in a parking lot. Well, trying, thing, trying to get something back get that was hit, stolen. It's his bike. I'm sure this would be a different story if his leg was broken. I, I understand that, but on, on principle alone, let's just say your kid got hit by a car. Your kid's bike got run over because he was chasing down a bully who stole something from him. He didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. It's not as if Preston had just left his bike, thrown it down in the parking lot, and the guy ran it over. That I get. He's an innocent bystander. He didn't... It's not his fault that this happened. So the parents getting mad with him, it never sat well with me. Even as an eight-year-old kid watching this, this never, ever sat well with me. Same. They've, they've done too good of a job at this point of making them dislikable. But then at the same time, you feel so bad for Preston that when he actually does accomplish this ultimate goal of getting his million dollars, you can't help but love that he pulls it off. But I feel like if they would have spent more time making him more likable rather than just watering down and dumbing down the characters around him, you could have accomplished that anyway. Yeah, I mean, you see in the scene at Butch's birthday that he is really isolated because he can't even get along with the kids. Well, not it's it's not really his fault, but he's not getting along with the kids his own age. Right. Um, I think it would have served a little bit better maybe to, you know, we know obviously it's wrong that the brothers got to take over his room, but I think maybe giving him a little bit more time alone in the room to see how out of place he feels with his family and with his friends, especially because, and it would have been an easy thing to do. He knows how to use the computer and his brothers don't. It would have been, you know, if you showed him spending time alone and that he's, you know, he's kind of an introvert Mm -hmm. and that's how he figured out how to use the computer. Cause that's the thing. The computer goes into his room and he just knows how to use it. Right. So I feel like they could have done a little bit more with the setup there. Yeah, if they would have given him a little bit of a backstory, almost like um, Matthew Broderick in War Games. Let there me think. You, there let's you go. talk about a movie that was made within ten or fifteen years of this, um, when a household computer was a very unique item, and not a lot of people knew really how to use them, much mm-hmm. less somebody at the age of eleven. But Matthew Broderick knew how to do it, and that's what sets off thermal nuclear war with the Russians. Total Cold War movie, and I love it. Um, but there's a character where you're a computer geek, you're very unique because not a lot of people are doing this. They could have given Preston more of that backstory and built on his knowledge of the computer and why he's able to use it. Right, because otherwise you've just got this like talk to text thing happening, which is kind of a ripoff too. the way that they use it when he buys the house of the talk boy in Home Alone, which came out two years earlier. Yeah. Home Alone 2 was the talk boy, I'm sorry. Right. But that was still 
two years predating this movie. Yeah. So you really are kind of pulling a bit too much from that. The, you know, the as far as all the hijinks goes to beat up the bad guys, I'll overlook that one. But here, you're kind of treading a little bit too close to what came before you. He goes back to the bank because now he has filled out this check for the million dollars. And um, first off, Mrs. Uderwitz and Mr. Bitterman, they look like the exact same person. I just have to say that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But they look exactly the same. No, and you know what? I feel like they might have been in more films together because I don't know if it's just that they were in so many background characters in so many 90s movies, but like I feel like, I don't know, I feel like they were both on Full House at one point or something. Right. But let's talk about this scene here. I said it before. Michael Lerner, big 90s actor. Wasn't he in Clueless? I want to say that he... I don't remember if he was on the television version of Clueless or if he, he was played in the film. Cher's dad at one point. I will look that up right now. Admittedly, I have seen Clueless once and I've seen an episode of Clueless when they had the television series. I think that was on TGIF. I saw it once. And I, I, I honestly cannot differentiate between one and the other because I think Michael Lerner was in one as the father and I want to say... Danny Haida was the father in the other iteration. At least I believe that's how you pronounce his last name. Well, anyway, uh, yeah, somehow he is connected in, in in the clueless universe. I can't believe I said that out loud. Um, but yeah, big 90s actor, good comic relief here. And um, Preston starts to get this money, and he asks Preston half-jokingly, uh, do you want big bills with that? And, and Preston says, "Big bill." Uh, he goes, "Oh, regular bills will be just fine." So he offers him big bills and then gives him fives and tens. <laughs> but we'll, we'll overlook that um, as they're just loading up this backpack, though. Hand of money, one over the other, over the other. I have never held that much money, but I really doubt it would fit in a backpack. I mean, I don't. I don't know. I, I don't think so, but I could be wrong. I'd love to know. That's a good problem to have. Yeah. Um, and Preston did a really good job, I thought, of not losing his cool while all of this was happening, other than having that big grin on his face. Um, but now, I think I'll give you permission. We can talk about Tone Loke and his shirt. That is probably the most 90s thing in this film other than his name being Juice. It's it's just the total package. He's got one of those license plates. Yeah. Hawaiian shirts. Yes. He or maybe a bowling shirt. I don't know. It's one of those buttoned down with, with just license plates back to back printed on it. And it's Tone Loke. As if it wasn't 90s enough. Do you know... Playing a guy named Juice. Do you know that when this movie opened up, Tone Loke was in the number one and number three films at the box office at the same time. This film opened up number three behind Ace Ventura Pet Detective, and Tone Loke plays a cop. He plays a detective, and a friend of Ace Ventura's in that movie. Funny enough, another Jim Carrey tie, Karen Duffy was in Dumb and Dumber. Yes, she was. The second time she played a woman named Shay that year. Yes. That also had a plot centered around a briefcase full of money. Uh-huh. Um, and another far-fetched movie filled with 90s tropes. 
Um, Dumb and Dumber's so funny, though. It's that's the thing. Dumb and Dumber is so ridiculous, and a, a, there's a lot of lowbrow humor. Most of it's lowbrow humor, which is typically not the type of comedy that I find to be funny. But I grew up with that movie. I can't get enough of that movie. I will stop what I'm doing to watch that. No, movie. you had me at Petey. I, I, oh, Petey. <laughs> oh, my God. When they give it to that kid and I, they I know, scotch I tape know. his head back. Oh, my <laughs> God. Uh, kids, one day. Is that a Fox acquisition? Um. Oh, my God. Hold on. Maybe. Hold on. Check that out. That might have been TriStar. I don't know. Look into that, though. Um. But I think as as this is all happening and he's just getting all of this money, I think to myself, like to this day, I still have that fantasy. Like I'm going to walk into a bank with a blank check and walk out with a backpack full of a million dollars. You you said the same thing just now. And I think that's where, without jumping too far ahead, I actually do think that this movie succeeds in, this is going to sound so crazy, in transcending generations. Because getting a million dollars in cash as a kid and buying every toy you ever wanted and having your own go-kart track and all of the things that will eventually happen, that's something that a child can relate to. But it's also something that as an adult, I think uh, parents watching this movie, and I think that's why there was a lot of adult humor in this as well, so that parents could take their kids to this movie and watch it and also enjoy it. Because I'm sure as an adult, you look back on it and go, man, if I were 11 years old, wouldn't I have loved if this happened to me? And I think that's where, as far-fetched as it is, the movie does succeed. Um, but yeah, Tone Loke, I thought, did a really nice job here. I thought he kind of killed the role as Juice because he's funny. He's very funny. But he's also very intimidating. When he has that initial scene with Michael Lerner where he puts his fingers up to his head and says, there's a bullet in this chamber for you, basically, if I don't get the money. He pulls it off really well. No, he doesn't. What do you mean, no, he doesn't? Not in that shirt. What is intimidating about that shirt? Did you not come out of your house in the mid-90s? Look at half the people. What they were wearing. Z Cabaricis? Look at, look at half of Oshkosh Bagash. Look at the fashion trends of the 90s. Half the people walking the street, whether they were good or evil, were dressed that way. Come on now. Juice may be tough, but that shirt does not strike fear in my heart. Like, what is the well-traveled man going to beat me to death? By the way, Dumb and Dumber was New Line Cinema, so no, we don't get to do that one. Oh, that's a shame. Oh, I was kind of hoping for a minute it was in that Fox acquisition. You know what else I would love to acquire and talk about? This castle. This castle that he buys. Can we talk about how the house is listed? It's And it is a castle. Side note. It is, it is an actual castle owned by Robert Rodriguez. He owns that house. So wait, they shot this in Texas? Yep. This was Houston, San Antonio, Dallas. I knew it looked familiar. That makes all the sense in the world now. It's listed at $220,000. He, dude, Robert Rodriguez, like, owns half of San Antonio now. He's put, like, a studio down there, and, like, he, oh, my God, he's one of my favorite directors. He does everything himself. It's amazing. Yeah, but let's talk about this house. Even for the mid-90s, 
How is this house only listed at two hundred and twenty thousand dollars? It's Texas. It's a castle in the. I understand it's Texas. I understand it was twenty five years ago, but there's no way that that house was worth that little. I don't know. We're from New York. We can't even afford a bedroom for two hundred thousand dollars. You know. Yeah, it's true. It's out of control. I'll buy, of all the things that I need to suspend my disbelief for in this movie, I'll go with that. Well, it's and it's funny because Quigley is trying to buy it and he's offering 170 cash up front and then you get the scene where Preston you know has the phone call and he's doing the text to voice and he says, "What's with your voice? You sound like a robot." To which his response is sore throat itis. <laughs> oh my god. But he's a kid. This is also where he creates Macintosh because right. he's about to give his real name out and he realizes he needs a cover story. So he looks at the computer. That That's such a 90s trope, too, to just look at something in the room and like Mrs. Doubtfire. Yes. He exactly. got it from the newspaper headline and you just find whatever you see and that's what you're going by. Right. But Quigley is I, he's a smart guy. You would think that a castle would be a little too showy for him. Like, don't you want something a little more inconspicuous if you're trying to hide? If you're on the lamb and you don't want to be found? Absolutely. You wouldn't be buying a castle. The other thing that is unrealistic about this, and again, you have to suspend some realism. Otherwise, this movie... If you don't suspend realism, this movie does not exist. At all. I recently rented a car when we went to Florida, and I signed no less than four or five sheets of paper. When I bought my car back in June, I must have signed my name to 20 sheets of paper. How did Preston buy a house? How did he get away with it? He signs nothing. Like, of course, this would have never happened. No, of course not. I mean, granted, these people were money hungry and they wanted everything in cash, so they didn't really care how they got it. What's kind of funny to me, though, is that this was like a glimpse into the future because when you think about now how like kids are playing with their parents' phones and then the next thing you know, two days later, Amazon Prime's yep. given, you know, delivering boxes right at your doorstep and you're like, I didn't order this. It's kind of funny. I mean, like, yes, granted, Preston knew he was buying a house, but it's just funny when the child outsmarts you. Yeah. And the way he did it, totally 90s, like you said, we saw Kevin McAllister do it when he had made his reservation at the Plaza Hotel with his talk boy. So, been there, done that, but it doesn't make it any less fun, as unrealistic as it is. We then meet um, Henry. And Henry, as I mentioned earlier, is the limo driver, played by uh, Rick DeCummin. And I absolutely love Henry. Because you needed to give Preston an adult... And an ally. And an ally that he could kind of, like, other than being driven around, you needed you needed something else there. You needed, like, that paternal influence. And what I like about Henry is that he reminds me of Bill Murray's character from Meatballs. He's the camp counselor that takes the underdog who looks up to him under his wing. And I felt that that was the exact 
relationship that Henry had with Preston here. I actually disagree with you. I love the relationship that develops between the two of them, but I don't see it as paternal because I don't think that that's what Preston needed is because, you know, he's shaken off his parents who aren't treating him well. So I think the last thing he wants is an adult he needs to answer to. And that's not what Henry is to him. He's just a pal. Yeah, but, you know, Henry, and while not always good advice, like, for example, when Preston goes on his date with Shay, um, Henry's there to kind of pump him up a little bit and give him... He's a hype man. He's a hype man, albeit bad advice, but give him advice. Right, but I feel like that's still, again, more like an older brother. Like, if you're going on a date, are you really going to go to your father or are you going to go to your older brother? It depends on the relationship you have with either of them. And the thing with Preston is he has no relationship with any of them. Right. And Henry is is sort of that void. And Henry drives them around and they run around Sharper Image and they buy up all these televisions and the go-karts and everything. They must have had so much fun filming. Really, this entire movie must have been a blast for them to film. Oh, absolutely. And... I just love the dynamic between the two of them because as as soon as Henry realizes this is not a joke, I'm driving this kid around, he's like totally on board with doing everything Preston wants to do. No, and never questions any of it. No, never a thing. Never because a thing. everybody else is, you know, and that's that's what I really like about Henry too is that I think he knew maybe not the whole time, but... It was never, where is Macintosh? I want to meet him. Never question where the money's coming from. He just goes with it. Yeah. And that's where I kind of feel like the relationship is more like a brother because he's not being an adult about it. He's, Henry's like, the, especially the way that he's playing with everything, he's like an overgrown child himself. Yeah. So I think it, it goes beyond don't look a gift horse in the mouth. I think it's that, you know, he just kind of enjoys palling around with Preston and doesn't, you know, doesn't need to question it. Right. And I think that he does teach Preston some lessons as the movie goes on about, you know, watch out for who your real friends are and and sharing the old story about a fool and his gold are soon parted and all that. So I I do feel like there was there was more to Henry than just being the guy that was hired to drive you around. It also reinforces the theme of let kids be kids. Yes. Because that's what Preston's father obviously had to learn, but it was what Henry knew all along. Yeah. And Henry is also there to cater to the adults. Sure. You know, he he is there because if it if it would have been a bunch of kids running around, like kids would have liked it. I don't think the adults would have enjoyed it. Not that the movie was made for the adults, but I went into detail before about how I do think that the movie actually can transcend generations. And I think that's what makes Henry necessary because even he has some adult humor in there. Like when they're driving, they're in the limousine and Shay is out for a run. <laughs> and she and, and Henry says, why don't you jump in the limo? We'll give you a ride. And she goes, no, no, I got to keep running. I'm out of shape. And Henry from the front seat yells, not from where I'm sitting, you aren't. <laughs> yeah, no. And his sight line is literally like her torso. Yeah. But it's funny nonetheless. Um, now, I alluded to this before. 
and and Disney didn't do anything any different than any other movie studio did in the mid '90s, where I think they tried to do these whole zany male targeted films with these outrageous plots. Films like this, films like Heavyweights, which was another movie that Disney made, Dumb and Dumber, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. But Disney specifically, we talked about when um, in the mid '80s, we talked about it when we reviewed Waking Sleeping Beauty. Um, which I believe was episode number 13. Teenage audiences were not going to see Disney movies. And specifically, they were losing the males. Mm -hmm. And I think that this movie tried to jump on the trend that so many other studios were on because I've said it before and I'll say it again at the risk of repeating myself, although I don't really care if I'm repeating myself because it's the truth. There were 90s tropes that almost became formulaic with films like this in how ridiculous they were. And I felt like this was their attempt to cater to that audience and draw the boys back into Disney and show them we're not just a company that does princess movies. I think that's a fair point. I also think it was on trend with what was popular at the time. I think it was probably more than anything else. I mean, I know we've been saying it a lot, but it wasn't just that it pulled elements from Home Alone. It's that that's what was popular. That's probably, you know, was was their response to making the kind of money that Home Alone brought in. Mm-hmm. And you want to talk about something that was totally 90s? We said we were going to talk about some of the outfits before. Like when he goes on his uh, spending spree and he's got the backwards hat, the sunglasses, and he's got his bum wear and everything else. How about when he goes on his date with Shay? I want to talk about this entire scene. Oh, please. Let's the do. white suit with that patterned vest and tie. The Don Johnson? Absolutely. How 90s is this? It, yeah, the 90s. And and her outfit, too, the off-the-shoulder red dress. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's totally 90s. Um, I'm sorry, it wasn't a white suit. He, it, was, um, it was royal blue. He wore a white tuxedo uh, at his birthday party. The suit that he was wearing was royal blue with that patterned um, vest and tie. Oh, you're right. You and know, his brothers I have... make the joke of "you look like a game show host," right? Because you know, you know why? Because he has his napkin on, and then the tablecloth falls over. Yes, and that's why I'm thinking it's all it's all white in that scene. No, you're right; it is his birthday. This entire dinner date is completely ridiculous. First off, why she would have agreed to go on a date with the 11 year old kid? I understand for her job why she's doing it because they're trying to figure out who's laundering money, where it's coming from. For her FBI job, but. Here's where you blow your cover. What bank teller just shows up at the house and then is allowed to take your $200 to open your account he's back a, to the bank? He's a kid. He doesn't know any better. We know that. But he's a kid. What does he know? She's there to take pictures because they're looking into Macintosh because they know somebody's stealing money. But the whole thing is totally ridiculous. And he goes to this high-end restaurant and he falls over and they go out for hamburgers and then they dance in a fountain. <laughs> honestly this is a great scene that is wasted in this movie i would have loved to see something like this in one of your classic 90s rom-coms if they had done it in harry met harry sally, met sally you've got Seattle. mail yes. pick one it, yeah. if it had billy crystal meg ryan or tom, tom hanks. hanks in it 
then yes, that's it, where I wanted this. Yeah, not to watch the the grown woman dance with the eleven year old child. But honestly, that looks fun as hell, regardless of what movie it's in. I would love to do that. And I remember, like, where where is? Oh well, it's Texas. Yeah, but I remember. I want to say. Well, Disney Springs has something similar to it, though not as big or as elaborate where kids can run through it. No, it's, yeah, down at the end of the marketplace. It's over by Goofy's Candy Shop, I think. Yeah, no, and it's really small. But didn't they? And they, it doesn't shoot up, you know, it, it doesn't go as high, whereas right. as an adult, you're going to be like, because it almost creates like a maze. Yeah. That's the cool part is you have to work your way out of it. I want to say that Six Flags had something like it. I remember seeing it somewhere before seeing it at Disney Springs, but like almost to the scale that it exists in this movie. Oh, that's fun. Oh, it was great. It was a great time. Especially after you tie one on at Disney Springs. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta go escape the water maze. And they go, sir, you're not allowed in there. <laughs> um, so anyway, the, the whole scene is ridiculous. It would never actually happen. And I, I understand... Why they put the scene in because they're trying to drive home the fact that, let's call it what it is, Preston is falling for Shay. And he thinks that, he thinks the feeling's mutual. So you you feel bad for him, but you're also giving a layer of substance there because while he thinks that what's happening is for real, as is displayed when he gets into an argument with his brothers about whether or not she's a gold digger, She's also in there doing this for her investigation. I understand why it's there, but it doesn't mean it makes any sort of sense or that it's any good. Here's the thing. As awkward as it is, I think it does serve well to the story. So I do disagree with you there because you get away with it. They cover the base that she's doing her job and she she agrees to this date under the guise of Preston can give her information about Macintosh. So... That all works, but I think this also serves to the theme of let kids be kids because at this point, Preston has all this money. He bought a house. He's living on his own. He's getting away with it at this point. And now he thinks of himself as an adult. And like he really, what I like that the movie does though is that he does not believe he is Macintosh. He always knows the difference, but he is starting to forget that he is a kid and this drives it home. Like, I, I know you just said the opposite, but I almost felt like there was a point where he knew Macintosh was fake, but I don't know if he recognized where Preston ended and Macintosh began. I think he did, but this is where his lie starts to fall apart. Yes. And this is where he needs to start thinking more quickly and reacting on his feet. And this is where you realize that as much as he's gotten away with, he didn't have everything thought out three steps ahead, which he needed to. Yeah. Let's talk about um, this party planner. Yvonne? Tzadza! Oh, my God. I love Debbie Allen, though. Yeah. She's great. I I didn't realize, because the movie is 25 years old, that that was her, who is now on Grey's Anatomy. Mm -hmm. Not that I watch it, but when you and I first got together, you watched it all the time. Well, because the writing was good. And I remember watching her on the show, and it was not until within the last couple of days that I realized it's the same person. I just need to go on record and say that I tapped out of Grey's Anatomy once Christina left. I couldn't take it anymore. And that's not to say that the writing was good up until then. 
it started getting bad. I just couldn't take it anymore. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Um, you know that she totally pocketed like half of the cash that she took from his backpack though, right? When she's like, oh, honey, you can't be walking around with this much money. Yeah, People a $10,000 deposit. And she, yeah, but she takes like four handfuls of money. You know she pocketed it. Speaking of the money, the prop I'm talking about. Yeah. Sometimes it's good. Other times it's real, real bad. Like when he rolls around in it. But terrible. Um, yeah. Well, I think that also serves to what we were just talking about is that, you know, he's having trouble keeping up with all of his lies. And like, he's still a kid. He doesn't realize that not every adult can be trusted because what does he have as an example? Henry. Yeah, exactly. I, I talked about it before. There's the line where they're getting ready to go into this birthday party and uh, Henry says a fool and his gold are soon parted and they, you know, basically says that if you're not smart with your money, it'll be gone fast. But I think that there's more there. I think it's also a lesson that Preston starts to learn that money can't buy you happiness. And I think this movie does teach that lesson because when you get to this birthday party scene... He's the only kid there. It's all socialites and people that Yvonne invited to create an entourage for Macintosh. This is the first time that in his own home, at the party that he's paying for with his money, he's completely alone. He becomes Gatsby at this point. Yes. It's, that's exactly right. I, I, you know, I didn't even put that together. And I think this is where that movie starts to take that change in terms of tone because we think that Henry's left him now because he was a fraud. Turns out Henry left to go get ice cream because Preston was not happy with the menu. And so Henry gets that redemption when he eventually comes back. I also think that this is where Henry really knows that there is no Macintosh, and I yeah. think that he's just trying to go get a kid ice cream on his birthday to, to smooth all of this yeah, over. I, th I think you're right. Yeah. Um, but to this day, I did then, but to this day, I cringe over how quickly he spent this money. Like, I get Ajita when he goes to look at that bank account and sees that there's like $330 left and that he blew a million dollars in six days. I mean, the house was driven up a hundred grand because Ma, you're blowing this deal. Yeah, <laughs> the computer caught his mom in the back. Would she say, "I'll be back at three, I think. And they thought she was bidding three hundred thousand. Not that that should be making or breaking it, but we really didn't talk a lot about the toys that he puts in the house. I mean, he puts, which I'm wondering if Robert Rodriguez still has the water slide that goes from the top floor into the pool. Um, so there's a water slide. There is the go-kart the track. Go track, the moon bouncer with the Velcro. Yeah. Uh, the, the batting, batting cage, cage. Yep. and then the VR room with whatever kind of... I think that was Afterburner he was playing on Sega. Or something similar to Afterburner. I was wondering if you even knew what the console the console was. I think I think that's what it was. Sure. And then that like giant chair, I'm sure that wasn't cheap. And then oh, and he's got arcade games that he's playing with her. So that adds up really quickly. Yeah. But the fact that he went through it that quickly. <laughs> but again, he's a kid. He's an eleven year old yeah. kid who has never had money. 
Yeah. And this is how he spent it. It's it's how any 11-year-old would spend it, to be Probably honest. Probably how I'd spend That's it. Exactly right. Exactly. Um, and then eventually, uh, Juice Quigley and uh, Bitterman show up at the house, and there's, they're chasing him around and all that. And I talked about it in the plot where he was going to assume this new identity, which would have made sense that he now has an identity because nobody's ever seen Macintosh. Now he's just the face to the name. It makes sense that he has a new identity, but it doesn't change the fact that he has no money. I mean, I guess he could sell or return most of what was purchased and he could just have $700,000 and live the rest of his life with it and the house. But um, I still laugh when he tells the FBI, I'm Macintosh, get off my property, and they arrest him anyway. I kind of wish that Preston was the one who thought of having him take over the persona and outsmarted all of them. Instead of Bitterman just pitching him the idea of like, you know, you need a new identity. Preston already set this guy up. Here it is on a silver platter. And Quigley just kind of going with it. But Preston didn't know that this was Quigley's endgame, was to start a new life and give himself a new identity. He had said it a million times to Bitterman. Plus, at this point, you've kind of knocked Preston back down to being an 11-year-old kid with no money, and he's panicked, and he's scared. Right, but he's panicked, so it's like, what better way to get out of this than have somebody else assume his Macintosh problems? I guess, but... Regardless, do um, you have anything else to add here, or are we ready for a final synopsis on the this kiss? Week? Oh, that's right. How could you forget the extremely inappropriate kiss? That's right, I forgot. So, at the end of the movie, when Shay has outed herself to Preston and she admits that she's the FBI agent and she's like showing him his badge and all, showing him her badge and all that, um, you know, they have that moment of like, this can never be. And like, she's trying to let him down gently because again, he is a kid and she totally recognizes that. And he knows, she knows that he's got a crush on her big time. And Meanwhile, she's a good sport about this whole thing. She really is. And she is trying to be as kind as possible here. But Preston is still 11 years old. And I don't know how old you are, but it's over 18. That was shocking to a point that I am surprised Disney Plus even put this out. That she mouth kisses him? Yeah. I mean, look, there are worse things. But I'm just surprised with not only the age gap, but that he's underage. That they wouldn't have even, like, recut that. Because, I mean, that's they're having a moment. They are. But, like, I'm surprised, like... He didn't go in for the kiss, and then she turned it into a cheek kiss or something like that. You know what? I mean, first off, you can't reshoot it. It's 25 years ago. Recut it, not shoot it. Well, even still, though, I don't know how you could have cut around it. I mean, I guess you could have if you tried hard enough. But here's the thing. I, it's just my opinion that unless something is terribly, awfully offensive, like unforgivably offensive— you don't need to cut these movies. You don't need to recut these movies. You don't need to edit out the bad parts. They are what they are. That's how they were intended to be. Unless they did something so egregious, 
I don't think that it needs to be trimmed. No, I mean, I, I'm not being prudish. I have no issue with it. I'm it, just surprised that they let it fly. It's uncomfortable even for 1994. You know what's interesting, too, is that you're saying it's uncomfortable even from, like, the male perspective where it's like, that's, like, you know, what you dream of happening. And and that yeah, but I as a, but even as a kid, you know why? Because even as a kid watching it, I I thought this would never actually happen. Well, mm-hmm. I guess that's it too. It does kind of cheapen it for me because it did pay out on the fantasy of the whole thing, and it doesn't necessarily fit because he's just had everything come crashing down. Well, I guess they wanted to give him one more victory. I I suppose. And that was basically the end of him being Macintosh. So, uh, and I, I guess that's it. That's like the one thing he got to keep. Yeah. So, um, still though, it's it doesn't mean it's not uncomfortable, but I guess I'm less offended than you are about it. Not that you're offended, but you know what I'm saying. I'm just surprised. Not not at the act of I am surprised that Disney did something like this back in the 90s and then left it in. But it also does play into the final synopsis of does this film hold up? And the answer for me is a hard no, which honestly doesn't even grieve me to say because this was a favorite as a child, you know, and we talked about how this was every kid's fantasy is, you know, coming into a lot of money and buying all these toys and stuff. But even with this being a product of the 90s, I think that there are too many instances where we are asked to suspend our disbelief. And that has more to do with bad plot than it being a product of its time. Because as a kid, of course, you love this movie. Like it totally plays into every kid's dream of coming into a bunch of money and being able to raid Toys R Us and getting whatever toys you want. But even still... When you boil it down to things like you mentioned with the landline phone that they bring up or even just the toys that he's got. I mean, the go-kart, okay, fine. The moon bouncer, okay, fine. The water slide, fine. The video game's fine. I think those are all things that kids would still go after now. But this movie does not reflect the zeitgeist of the 90s like this isn't what kids were actually doing you know we had the batting cages we had the video games and the arcades we had like looking back on it literally everything that he bought but you had to go though they weren't made for the home is what I'm what I'm getting at right you had to go somewhere to do those things so even if you had a lot of money it wasn't like they were made for the consumer so you know like we had things like nerf and yeah okay like you said the video games but not on that scale like we didn't have the VR right that was technology way beyond anything that you could purchase for the home so that's what I'm saying it doesn't it it still doesn't reflect on what pop culture was at the time. Like for me, where it doesn't hold up is that if a kid, you know, does Disney plus roulette and stumbles across this, it's not an accurate reflection of what the nineties were. Um, I, I disagree. Um, 
I think that I think that the '90s and certainly the '80s suffered from a lack of subtlety. I think everything was big, big hair, big shoulders. I mean, shoulder pads in blouses and in jackets, and, and on you know on women and, and even on men. You know, some of those big-shouldered things. I, like I just feel like everything was meant to be bigger and more extravagant where everybody wanted to be a lawyer or an investment banker. Like this is just what the trend was in the mid to late eighties. Um, and I think that that's sort of where this movie is dated and it does lend itself to that. But the video games, the fashion, the go-karting, like I feel like a lot of this, and I think I said the fashion just now, but especially with that, um, and the music, the soundtrack of this film, like yeah, I think it does lend itself very much to the 90s. Um, with that said, where do I agree with you? I do think that the movie is totally dated. And I do agree that a kid is not going to necessarily connect with... I think a kid nowadays, having never seen this before, will connect with the overall message of the movie. And what it wanted to accomplish was if you had a million dollars as an 11 year old, what would you do with it? That's where I think the movie is a success. But I watch a film like don't tell mom, the babysitter's dead. And I think to myself, God, this movie is old. I watch a movie like Hocus Pocus. I know it's one of your favorites, but I look at that movie and I go, Oh my God, this movie's old. And it timeless. It wasn't until I watched this that I thought to myself, oh man, this movie is really old. With that said, as ridiculous as it is, there's nothing wrong with sitting down to watch a movie for the purpose of having fun. And as unrealistic as it is and as dated as the movie is, and maybe it's because I grew up with it and because I am of its time, I still watch this movie and think, oh my God, this movie is so much fun. And I think this movie has a ton of rewatchability for people of our generation. I don't think that stands true for a kid 12, 13, 14 years old watching this movie for the first time now. I hate to say it because when I was like a teenager and I was able to get a DVD copy of it, I was all about it. I was happy to have found it because... It was a rare find. And I was still able to watch it and enjoy it for the nostalgia. But watching it now, there are just, you know, like I said, it's the plot issues. I have a lot of issues with the pacing, too. And like some of the waiting for Preston to deliver his lines, I think, was a little slow at times. Or like some of the, you know, some of the setups where they were getting beat up just felt very dragged out. Um, I will say this, though, where this movie kind of redeems itself is that watching it now, I kind of thought that the whole purpose of the movie was driving to get them in the house and then have that Home Alone villains get what's coming to them moment. There's actually a lot more substance here in the message than this movie gets credit for as far as, you know, like we said, the relationship with the parents and uh, let a kid being a kid. 
sure. But we're interested in knowing what you have to say about it. You can let us know on our social media, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can also email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. I cannot believe we spent as much time talking about this movie as we did. We do have a little bit more to get to. That's going to be our news of the week. But first, we're going to take a very quick break. If you're thinking of taking a Disney trip this year, whether it's Walt Disney World in Florida, Disneyland in California, a Disney cruise, or Olani in Hawaii, get in touch with me for a free quote. I would love to help you plan a trip for you and your family. Or even if you've already booked, reach out. I want to help get you the best deal possible. You can contact me on any of the Monoreal Radio social media outlets or shoot me an email at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at magicalvacationplanner.com. News this week. If you are a fan of National Treasure, you jumped up and down this week when you found out that now it's it's a rumor, but it's kind of picked up some steam. Yeah, I mean, I don't like to talk rumors on this show because I'm not about fake news and I don't I I hate clickbait. Like there are so many sources for Disney I feel like that used to be really legitimate. And most of them are garbage. Yeah. Now they're just putting information out there that they're not fact checking and they just want to break it first, which is the problem with news overall. But anyway, I digress. Um, This one is getting a little bit of traction, though, that they are doing a National Treasure 3 for Disney Plus release. And I am here for it. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. I love National Treasure It's been a long time since I saw the second one. I think I was sort of indifferent on the second one. I mean, of course, we're going to review them for the show, especially if we have a third one coming. But I'm excited to get the conclusion of the trilogy. Give me some Nick Cage. You know, I love me some Nick Cage. I can eat a peach for hours. I am so excited to get more. But you know what it is, too? Like, joking aside... You want to talk about sitting down for a movie that that is completely unrealistic, but you just have so much fun with it? Yeah. Look no further than National Treasure. That was always one where if it came on TV, because that, you know, this got a pretty widespread distribution where it was like on TV all the time. My family would like drop what we were doing to when, you know, even if it came in in the middle of the movie, we were just like, oh, National Treasure's on. Or like, it's one of my dad's favorites, actually. So like, he'd be watching it and like, slowly my mom, myself, my brother would like trickle in at different points because we would see it on. And this is coming from somebody, I don't know if we've talked about this on the show, how much I hate Nicolas Cage. And yes, he's very Nicolas Cage at some points, but he does tone it down. I love National Treasure. I love these stories. And I think you can actually get a solid third one out of it. I don't feel like we were done with it in the second. No, but I feel like the reason we never got the third one was because that trend of film came to an end. When the original National Treasure, the first one, came out, think about the movies that within a couple of years of that release were very popular. You had The Mummy Mm -hmm. and then its sequel. You had Ocean's Eleven and its sequel. They were all sort of these like heist, the Italian job, these kind of like heist caper movies Mm. that became very popular for like five or six years. And I feel like National Treasure 2 came on the tail end of those types of films. But I feel like you're starting to see them kind of swing back in again. Sort of. So I I would agree with that. I think the timing is right. Right. And what, as I understand it, 
the reason that they haven't officially announced anything yet, I think they're still doing fact checking and research before they get the plot done. Would make sense. I mean, obviously, it's historical fiction. You can't take too many liberties with it. Um, so I think once they're done with the research, we'll probably get the official announce. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm sure you guys are excited. But again, we want to hear from you. Let us know how you feel about a third National Treasure movie and what your opinion of that film going directly to Disney Plus is because I think that is very significant that they're going to put it right to the streaming service. That's a movie that you would think would be released theatrically. Again, social media, uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. Radio at gmail.com is the email address if you don't belong on or don't belong to any of those social platforms. But, you know, who does belong on a social platform who is on a number of social platforms, the winner of our latest Monoreal Radio giveaway. This was for a Blu-ray DVD combo pack with digital copy of the original animated classic Aladdin. As a reminder, all you had to do was share the episode of Aladdin when we announced that we were doing the contest, and quite a few people did, and our winner is Mike a, I'm not going to say your last name. I'm going to protect your privacy. But Mike A, we will reach out to you on social media to get your shipping information. And we will be sure to get that film in the mail to you as soon as possible. Thank you so much for sharing the episode and for listening to Monoreal Radio. And thank all of you, really, for coming back each and every week here on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to hit the uh, subscribe button on your podcast platform of choice. Please leave us a rating and share the episode. Make, make sure people know that you're listening to the show. If you have somebody that loves blank check or loves 90s tropes, please share the episode with them. And send us your roulette numbers, either email or social media is fine. We wanna we wanna get your random picks, and we wanna start reviewing the films that you're feeding to us. Um, we're gonna do this about once a month. Yeah, unless there's like a huge release where there's like a three or four film lead in to some big release, we'll probably be doing this once a month. That's at least the plan. So thank you guys again so much for Jackie. I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.